From the front lines to the home front, America's military veterans and first responders are committed to serving our nation and our community and protecting our way of life. The Epic Times Battlefield Project, in partnership with the Havoc Journal, gives voice to America's service community and highlights their successes and their struggles, their triumphs, and their tragedies. In their own words and from their own hearts, these are their battlefields. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to another episode of the Battlefields Podcast. I am your host, Lieutenant Colonel Retired Charlie Fate, once again bringing you stories from the front lines and the home front. As usual, if you like what we're doing here on Battlefields, please download and share this episode and leave us a five-star review. And if you are interested in being a future guest, our contact information is in the show notes. With me today is my friend and fellow war veteran, Aaron Love. Aaron is an active duty pararescue man in the U.S. Air Force, currently serving in a special tactics squadron as a troop chief. He joined the military shortly after the 9-11 attacks, and as part of the U.S. Special Operations community, Aaron served overseas in Afghanistan, Iraq, and Africa. Aaron is also a founding member of the Ones Ready Project, which you can find at onesready.com. Aaron is with us today in his capacity as a private citizen, and his participation in the Battlefields podcast does not reflect an official endorsement by the U.S. Air Force or the U.S. government. From his post-9-11 enlistment, to his combat service, to the Ones Ready podcast, and so that others may live, these are Aaron Love's Battlegrounds. Aaron, welcome to Battlefield. So glad to have you on the show. Hey, thanks for having me on. I really appreciate it. Yeah, as I mentioned before we started, this is our first actual joint episode. So you and the Air Force, the first time we've had anyone non-Army. So we're counting this as the doctrinally correct joint episode of Battlefields. That's terrifying, and I'm excited about it. I can't wait to absolutely set the bar so low that your next joint guest can do nothing but succeed. So whoever that is. Great. That's good looking out, brother. I appreciate it. (laughs) I do what I can. Aaron, I always like to start off with early life and why you chose to join the military. And I saw your bio on the Ones Ready podcast site that you enlisted in the Air Force in September of 2001, which is a pretty exciting time for our nation. So can you walk us through why you decided to join and why you chose the Air Force? Yeah, so I know that the the whole GWAT thing is over, but if let's let's go back 20 years or so and, and go back to September of 2001, and there was some significant event that happened during that time. So yeah, I, I you know, I was an older guy. I was 21 at the time, and I was tooling around. I was really 20. Uh, I hadn't turned 21 yet. So, I, you know, I was 20-year-old in, in 2001. And really, I'd, uh, you know, I'd take it back. I was 21 because I'm bad at math and how old I am. But, uh, you know, I was tooling around Northeast Ohio. I tried college out. You know, I went to Ohio State for, you know, a couple of years, and that didn't stick. And I just, I wasn't really motivated to go to higher learning. And I ended up going back to Northeast Ohio and was just kind of tooling around and, and bouncing from one thing to another. And September 11th happened and that was it. You know, I grew up in, I grew up in a house that my dad was in the military. Both my grandfathers were in the military. A lot of my uncles were, but it was never a thing that was pushed on us. Like I'm not a military brat by any means. Uh, you know, I grew up in the firehouse in, in Northeast Ohio with my dad who served two or three years in the army after, you know, his AIT training. And then, you know, he was after right after Vietnam. So, um, it was just one of those things where September 11th happened and 
the words of my dad and my grandpa's rang in my head, you know, every generation owes a debt to this nation and you don't know what that debt's going to be. Sometimes it's the greatest generation of World War II and sometimes it's the generation that grew up in the, you know, 70s, 80s, 90s when there really wasn't huge deep back wars going on. But I just knew that that was it. So no kidding. I think September 12th, I was in the recruiter's office and I was gone. I had about a three month wait to get processed and and whatever. But January 1st of 2002, I found myself in San Antonio, Texas at Air Force basic training. So what attracted you about the Air Force? You could have probably gone into any of the services with your background and accomplishments at that point. Why the Air Force? Because they were open. The other three recruiters were closed on the day that I went in, and I wish that there was more thought into it. Now, so I, I was talking to him, talking to my dad, and I said, Dad, I, I want to get into this thing, and I'm, I don't want to sit on the sidelines. I want to go fight, so I'm going to go talk to the Marines. And my dad looked at me. He goes, hey, just do me a favor. Go to the Air Force. There, there's this job called pararescue. Not many people know about special operations in the Air Force, but just go check them out. You know, I'm not, he, my dad was an army guy. We had cousins that were Marines, like no, no big deal. No shade to the Marines, to the, to the USMC. But he was like, Hey, just, just go check the air force out and see if there's something there that you might want to do. And that was the end of it. I walked into the, I, no kidding, walked into the local recruiter in Barberton, Ohio, which is a small suburb of Akron, Ohio. The only people that know about Akron know it for two reasons, LeBron James and the Goodyear blimp. It's the only two things that are there uh, that are worth anything in <laughs> Akron, Ohio. But I walked into this small suburb in a recruiter's office and I said, hey, I, I'm a runner. I'm a swimmer. I, I like doing hard things. And the guy immediately handed me a pamphlet and was like, yeah, PJs for you. You should try it out. Well, let's talk a little bit about PJs. I'm very familiar with them, but I, I don't think a lot of people are. I think they're one of the, the many unsung heroes in the soft community. So can you tell us a little bit about PJs, what they do and your experiences specifically as a PJ? Sure. Yeah. So pararescuemen are a, they're an enlisted career field. So pararescuemen and combat rescue officers, combat rescue officers, hence the name, are the officer contingent of the um, pararescue community. So pararescuemen are the only DOD asset that are specifically trained and equipped 24-7 personnel recovery across the spectrum of DOD. And what that means is that each, each service has to have the ability to recover its own people, right? So the Army, all soft, inherently have the ability to do hostage rescue and direct action and personnel recovery as part of what they do. Pararescuemen are the only career field that trains specifically to personnel recovery in all environments, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And we provide that personnel recovery expertise across the entire DOD. So you have a whole contingent of people that are only focused on that and not as a contingency response. So PJ is actually a retronym. It doesn't actually mean anything anymore. Way back in the day, we were called pararescue jumpers. And on the flight forms, they used to just shorten it to PJ. Well, they changed the name to Pararescue. So in 1966, the name was then changed to, you know, the Pararescue Career Field. But they kept the name PJ because everybody knew us as PJs. In those, in those early years, we were known as PJs because that's what you're on the flight form. So they would look in the back of the airplane and go, hey, hey, PJ, you ready to go? Like, yep. So uh, that's actually what it means. But yeah, I didn't make it my first time through. So selection is really hard. We have the highest attrition rate in the DOD. Uh, we stand at about 91% attrition. So that means you have a 91% chance of failure from assessment selection all the way through to putting your beret on. So it's extremely hard to do. We're extremely small. We're about a tenth of the size of other comparative special operations forces. So, you know, SEALs, Green Berets, they're in the thousands of operators. We are in the hundreds um, at best. So there's only about 500 PJs that are actively serving right now. And most of those actually are in the Guard and the Reserve. So the Air Force contingent of active duty PJs is, is pretty small. Um, we have a pretty robust mission set. So 
Ended up doing a different job in the Air Force, came back into the pipeline later in my career as a, as a staff sergeant with a little bit more time under my belt, a little bit more experience, and ended up making at that time, that was in 2006. So I've been doing the job, you know, since then. And then, uh, you know, five combat deployments, multiple contingency operations and and other things, in, you know, under, under my belt. I'm not going to sit here and tell war stories because nobody's interested in war stories, but um, it's been a great ride. I'm over 21 years in at this point and, uh, you know, just really, uh, really thankful for what pararescue is and what the Air Force has provided me for for this entire time. Because looking back, it's, uh, I mean, lots of crazy stories, lots of things that I would have never been able to experience across this great world. So That's pretty amazing. I had no idea that PJs had a, uh, had an attrition rate that high. That's astronomical. Yeah. Do you think that that's good for the PJ as an operational core to have that much? Or would you like to see that number come down a little bit in terms of attrition? So I'm contractually obligated to say that we can never let standards slip, right? Like I have to do that as a special operator and especially as a PJ. I, I think it's right for the mission set, though, because we, unlike other other soft branches, we put people in extremely harrowing situations by themselves very early on. You're talking about, you know, I don't know how many examples I have of E2s, E3s, E4s being the voice of reason. Like when the music stops and it's a personnel recovery, if somebody gets trapped, if somebody is isolated behind enemy lines, you look at the PJ and nobody cares how old you are. Nobody cares if it's your first deployment or not. So we typically put people in those situations really, really early. And we we select out for a very specific type of person through our assessment selection process. And although that selection and assessment process has changed, it's not called the indoctrination course anymore. It's called ANS. We're still about the same attrition rate. And I can tell you from receiving those, those men and soon to be women, there will be one that graduates at some point, just not yet. When I receive those men and soon to be women on the other side of it, on the output side of that hose, we're still recruiting for that same person. We're still selecting that same person where when the music stops and when you have to be able to make a call, they expect pararescue men to make that call. They look at you and go, oh, PJ, uh, this, uh, there's a guy trapped in this vehicle. There's somebody that's on the top of a mountain that we can't get to. Oh, by the way, we might have, we might have to stay with him for 72 hours. We can't do that. Well, pararescue says, okay, well, we can. Um, and the selection process speaks to putting people in these unwinnable scenarios where you're working on a team and teamwork has to come first, but it's hugely individually focused. Um, you know, at the, the assessment selection and pre-dive process that we run, it's a team event. Everybody needs to like successfully complete the event. But really what it is, is you without oxygen, with your own tasks that you have to complete in order for the team to accomplish their overall task. And it's, completely dependent, almost independently upon you. You know, it's nobody else gets to help you tie your knots at the bottom of the pool. Nobody else gets to get you through one man. Nobody else gets you through these individual evaluations that we force pararescue to go through their entire pipeline. But it really does produce exactly what we need, especially for the combat commanders in the DOD, which is a mature problem solver that has their own initiative that can find intuitive or inventive ways to solve problems that you may not have thought of before and can think outside the box enough to make those happen. So when you go in on a rescue mission, Aaron, are you with other special operations units? Are the PJs alone and unafraid? How does that normally work? So it's a mix of both. So there are the, the easiest ways to think about it is, you know, the rescue units operate where they draw a box around an area that operations are going on and they say, okay, people are flying, special operations forces are working, other agencies are working in this area. If something happens in the box, they're going to call us and we're going to go get them. 
typically you're working on a team of pararescue and combat rescue officers for that sort of thing. And then you right size your team to figure out what it is you need to do for a jump mission, you know, in the ocean, you might need 10 PJs and, and an officer who, who knows what you might need for that. You know what I mean? Depending on how long you're going to be out or, or what the tactical thing is. There has been plenty of other times where PJs have gone out in two-man teams, you know, six-man teams to go get a mission done because they right-sized it. So that's the first example is, you know, hey, there's a box. Are there people that need help in this box? Okay, cool. We're on call for everything that happens in this area. The other way is the enabler mission. So we're other high-risk teams like Army Special Forces teams, and this is all the way from the Tier 1 units down. They'll request to have a technical rescue specialist, pararescue essentially attached to their team and go out and provide that enabler mission so that if something happens, the PJ can engage immediately and then kind of provide that band-aid so that when they can transfer that patient off target or maybe that piece of sensitive equipment, they're kind of on the scene right away. So I would answer and say both. The enabler mission, you're attached into another special forces team and you're part of a bigger team, some sort of special operations force, whether it be Navy, Marines, international um, but then there are other times, too, where you're working specifically um, as a member of another team, like a special tactics team or a rescue team. Okay. And you mentioned earlier that you spent some considerable time downrange. And I think in your bio, it showed Africa, Afghanistan, and Iraq. Can you talk to us a little bit about, in general terms, what those deployments were like and the kinds of things that you did kind of day to day? Sure. Yeah, I was actually lucky to see a good mix of exactly what it is that we do across the full spectrum. So when I went to Iraq the first time, uh, it was, you know, a task force deployment. So I was specifically staring at a whole bunch of task force operations that were going on that it was 2010 in that time. So, you know, when I was there, we were specifically looking at, okay, these are the seven missions that are going on. These five missions are high risk. So we need to stare at these missions that if anything happens, they're going to call us in and we're going to go fix problems. And that was that was a really cool thing because I got to see, no kidding, the tiered side of the of the world. And I got my eyes open to a lot of things that were going on as a young pararescueman. And that was that was great. Um, you know, the next one that I went to was Africa and it was a complete and total change of pace. I was no longer at an STS. I was working at a, a rescue unit and I got to go see you know, training partner forces and teaching partner forces how to fix their own problems and standing alert for, you know, completely separate things in a in a little bit more of a permissive environment in the Horn of Africa. And I got back and that, that was my time in, um, in Las Vegas. So I was at the 58th Rescue Squadron in Las Vegas for that first deployment. But then my next two were uh, both to Afghanistan. So one to Hellman, where we were just finishing up doing the Kazovac rotations. So for a long time, pararescue, had split time in Afghanistan doing Kazovac, both in Iraq and Afghanistan, as a matter of fact, had split time with the army performing Kazovac and dust-off missions. So I was in Afghanistan in Helmand. Uh, we did the Kazovac mission and we were still filling that role. And then the next year that I went, we were in Bagram and that actually turned off. And then we were, we were back to a rescue team providing personnel recovery coverage for essentially the almost the entire area of Afghanistan because at this time it was 2015 and we were we were shutting stuff down. I actually shut Bastion uh Bastion Leatherneck Shorebach down which is down in Helmand when my, my deployment there was the last one that a uh, Air Force rescue team was there so we actually were the ones that stood that alert down and then the next year went up to Bagram but we were sort of the only show in town. If anything went off that re required our team it was going to be our team that went. So 
um, that was a good one. And then, you know, had the chance to go back to, to Africa yet again, a different area of Africa this time, but doing more of the ST mission set. So the air to ground integration, the airfield seizure and airfield, um, you know, um, approval process that comes along with, you know, the ST mission set and then a couple other really cool opportunities that I, I don't think I would have gotten to see anywhere else. So, um, that's kind of the three operational environments. They were all, all different enough to where I learned a whole lot about them. Iraq and Afghanistan, sort of the same, you know, sort of the same scenery, depending on where you were. And one was a little bit more mountainous than the other, but it was still the same as, as far as combat deployments go. And then Africa really opened my eyes up to, to what we are doing as a larger special operations force concerned with non-kinetic effects which is way, way more interesting than, you know, kicking down a door and shooting people. Not, I'm not saying that I have, but I'm saying that that thing looks great on Instagram. It looks cool. And that's what everybody misses about GWAT. But, you know, those non-kinetic effects, those things that we're doing on the softer side, the more scalpel and less hammer side are the things that are really, really paying dividends. And that was really interesting to see. So as we kind of transition away from what you and I experienced in Iraq and Afghanistan and look more at high intensity type conflicts, maybe with Russia, maybe with China, are, are PJs changing your TTPs or the way that you train in order to go after those threats? Or do you still have a mission that's a lot like what it was during the GWAT? So it's both. I love not answering your questions, by the way, Charlie, this is great. When you ask me something, I just completely <laughs> obfuscate and find a way. I had a general one time look at me and I asked him a, a direct question. He said, you know, Aaron, I'm going to answer the question that I wish you would have asked and not the one you asked. Um, <laughs> I, I thought that was one of the most cultured pivots I'd ever seen. So I use this example a lot. I got it from one of my friends and I've already given him credit on other podcasts. So I won't, I won't talk about him. I'll drop his name here. But my friend, Justin, looked at me and said, you know, because we talk about training and people often ask us through the project, well, how are we going to get ready for the next fight? What are we going to do? Listen, y'all, on September 10th of 2001, there was not a single special forces team that was riding around on horseback, on a horseback TDY, because they thought that that's what the next right. conflict was going to bring. There just isn't a way to do it. You train your core skills, right? PJ, shoot, move, communicate, lead, medicate, tech rescue. That's what we do. Now, the environment might change. The peer adversary may change. The way that we get to our patient, access our patient may change. There may be a new tool on the horizon. The technological advances that I've seen in the last 20 years are ridiculous. Just absolutely insane, right? We, you're talking, we have a thing now that you can put a puck on a patient. You can put it on up to 10 patients and on your ATAC, on your cell phone, you'll have all 10 patients, you'll have their vitals. And if one starts getting a little bit wonky, it'll blink red. And you can tell your medic to go check that patient in a mass casualty situation. It's amazing, right? Wow. But we didn't know that we, you know, I didn't need that in Iraq in 2010. You know, all I needed there was to, to be a good primary medic. Stop bleeding, get them breathing, make them leaving. That was it. That was my job as a PJ3. So to answer the question kind of directly, we know what the mission set is going to be. We know what the DOD wants from Air Force personnel, specifically pararescuemen, right? That's clear in the combat commanders, you know, op boards and O plans and everything that that doctrine leads us down that road. We know what we need to provide to the larger force. We may not know what environment we have to do that in. So we train for a lot of environments. We train, hey, if we got to rescue somebody in the Arctic, you better know a little bit about skiing. You better know a little bit about Arctic warfare. You better know a little bit about survival in the Arctic because that's a or open ocean or the jungle. Um, so, you know, pararescue is always, you know, proudly referred to as a jack of all trades, but a master of none. Uh, the end of that quote, but people often miss, by the way, is better than a master of none. So in your face, everybody that forgets it. Um, 
but to you know to to try to answer that as succinctly as possible i don't i don't know what the next future fight holds you know i don't know exactly you know the big words now are you know our pacing challenge with china and what is a what is contested pr really look like because all all pr is contested right but when you have unquestioned air superiority you can talk in the clear to whoever you want basically any time you want you can basically just roll into an area via force and do what you want that's a completely different picture than trying to get a deep strike fighter out of an area that is no kidding denied so that's an exquisite problem set or you start talking about the littoral space you know, uh, holy cow, what a complex space that is to try to work in. So we we might not know what's coming up, but we know what we provide to the combat commanders and what they need from us. So we just hone those core skills as, as sharply as we possibly can and then embrace what pararescue and combat rescue officers are known for, which is their ability to improvise when provided with that problem set. So Aaron, I was thinking a lot when you're talking right now about what type of person that you're looking for as a PJ. So for someone who listens to this podcast, gets inspired by Aaron Love and wants to run out and listen to the Air Force and become a PJ, what kind of person are you and your your comrades looking for? And what kind of things should people focus on if they want to become like you in the future? Well, first of all, I hope that they become a better version of me because the my imposter syndrome is just going off the charts. So as you say, you know, be like Aaron Love. I don't I, even I don't want to be like me sometimes. Um, you know, you start with a good person. We, it's the funniest thing inside of a special operations team room is you say, you know, well, you got to be a good dude and put out and then nobody can tell you what a good dude is. Well, be a good person, be somebody that's dependable, be somebody that stands by your word, be somebody that shows up on time with the right stuff for training. That's just basic stuff, right? That's, that's stage one of, of who we're looking for. On top of that, we have nine or eight, eight or nine attributes that we assess and select for specifically. Stuff like teamwork, coachability, grit, determination, all of those things. I, I can boil it down to just being a good dude and putting out and not quitting. We need somebody that's going to show up every single day in the face of impossible odds, and they're simply going to perform. Short memories, problem-solving, self-starting initiators, uh, initiators that, that want to get the job done and put the team before themselves. It's part of our motto and it seems sort of cheesy, but I've lived it for 21 years now and it, it really does ring true. But you put your job before personal desires and comforts. You are ready to do these things that others may live, which is our career field motto. So those type of people, you can only find those type of people by really digging through a whole lot of bedrock that, that we all layer on top of ourselves. You have to strip that away to find that that core person. And that's how we do it through assessment selection and, and then further on in the job. But if you like autonomy, if you like being able to improvise, if you like being, uh, you know, having a very flat organization, Air Force Special Operations is the place for you. Air Force Special Operations Command is a very flat organization. It's bottom-up driven Almost all of our doctrine was was taken by dudes on the ground because the Air Force is all flyers. It really is. Like there's pilots that run the Air Force because we're the Air Force. So when it came time to ground operations, we'd go, hey, can we do this? And the pilots go, ah, I don't I don't know. Is that going to work? We'd be like, no, yeah, yeah, totally. It'll work. Yes, we're going to do this now. <laughs> um, but if you if you want that opportunity, we are we are very small. We can pivot a lot faster because we are such a small career field. Really, our career field manager can come out and go, 
hey, we're doing this now. This is the new direction that we're heading. And everybody's like, yep, Raj, got it. So I hope that people are inspired. That's the whole reason we started Ones Ready. I hope they're inspired to become a pararescue. But if you are out, some of the things that you'll get is fantastic. If you are the type of person that's, we, we kind of joke like Air Force Special Operations is a bunch of really in shape nerds that refuse to quit, which is a, <laughs> I actually like that. Uh, somebody said it to me uh, in a hurtful way. Oh, you know, one of my Marine brothers said that to me. And I was like, well, that is kind of true. We are kind of nerdy. <laughs> so I, I just take it on as a badge of honor at this point. But yeah, I would say, you know, um, you know, typically we're a little bit older. We skew a little bit older. We skew a little bit uh, more college, more education-based. And it's people that really are a little bit more willing to improvise and sort of just play it off the cuff because everything, I, I don't think I've ever gotten a nine line uh, or a 15 line for that matter. I've never gotten either one of those reports and found out that it was true when I got there. You get a nine line where it's like, hey, it's only one dude. He's really not hurt that bad. You show up and there's 10 people and they're all hurt bad. And you're like, what happened, man? What happened on this report? That sounds about right. That's about typical. Yeah. Every single time. Yeah. And you get a call that everyone's dead. You show up and there's there's like one dude with a sprained ankle. And he's yeah. got his thumb up. He's like, hey, I'm just looking for a ride home. You're like, oh, okay. Well, yeah, gotcha. Well, Aaron, you mentioned one's ready. And I'd like to talk about that at length because I think that project's very interesting and important. So could you take us through what one's ready is, how it got started and wh where you intend to take it? Yeah. So the the four of us at the beginning, we just got together and it was just this thing where we were kind of on a text message together, a bunch of friends that are other operators. And we were lamenting that we, you know, through a, a number of different social media platforms and chat boards, we kept answering the same 10 questions over and over and over again. So in 2000, I think it's 2019, early 2019, we're like, you know what we ought to do? We ought to just make a podcast, put all the answers out there. We'll just answer all these questions so that we never have to answer them again. Well, three years later, spoiler alert, I'm still answering the same 10 questions. We just we just rehash it because nobody goes back and listens to the old podcasts. They just they want to hear a new episode with the same answers. So that's what we do. No, but um it, it just sort of took off from there is because a lot of people, people can tell you what a ranger does, people can tell you what a Navy SEAL does, even if it's kind of cheesy or the movie version. People can tell you what Army Special Forces do. But if I walk up to somebody on the street, sometimes those people are even in the Air Force. I walk up to them and I go, Hey, what does a PJ do? And they're like, I don't know. I heard they drown you guys at selection and you go rescue pilots and stuff. Like, uh, well, uh, you know, about a fourth of that is true. But people don't know that about, you know, combat controllers. They think they're just JTACs. People have no idea what special reconnaissance does because they just sort of got rebranded. So we really just wanted to start the, the educational process and put it out there. And then along the way, we've sort of found that there's not a lot of connective tissue between the operators that are in the career fields and what's going on at assessment selection, which we all care about. Right. So that that assessment selection and that in doc, the, the thing that I can boil it down and why people care about it so much is that it's a shared experience. Me as a team leader with, you know, 20 years, I don't have a whole lot of common with a Gen Z, you know, guy or gal that's 21 years old that shows up to the team room. But we immediately have that in common. I can go, oh, hey, how how that 50, 50 meter underwater at the graduation? How would that go? And he goes, oh, it sucked. They made us wear BDUs. And you can go, oh, well, yeah, they made us wear BDUs too. It sucks. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like that's a shared experience. So we we found along the way with Ones Ready that we actually provide a pretty good amount of connective tissue. And we've started bringing legends of our career fields on because again, you may not know, but pararescue men and, and JTAC or you know, combat controllers throughout history 
are in every single large movie thing that you've ever heard of. The first person to touch Captain Phillips was a PJ. The, some of the people that shot the other, you know, it wasn't just Navy snipers. Those were some combat controllers as well. The last person boots on the ground in Vietnam was a very famous pararescue chief master sergeant named Wayne Fisk. He was legitimately the last person to leave. Some of the last people to leave the HKIA evacuation, close friends of mine. Those were pararescue combat controllers that were doing the special tactics mission set. So, you know, Black Hawk Down, Jessica Lynch, I can go on and on the amount of things that we have been a part of, but we've sort of quiet professionaled ourselves to death. It's almost been to the detriment that people don't know these stories. So we started just, you know, talking about, hey, let's get these legends of the career field on and let's let's establish a culture and a history, if only to let them tell their story. So we have people that were in and playing the Sante Raid. We have people that were at Eagle Claw. We have people that were at Desert One. Uh, we just completed a couple series with them. So, you know, it started as this informational project where we wanted to help people understand what the career fields were. And then completely transparently, I want to steal some of those SEAL candidates. I want to steal some of those Special Forces candidates because we're all looking for the same person, really. But it's just they have so many more than we do. If I can just right. get a couple, if I could just steal a little bit of talent here and there, be like, hey, I know you want to be an 18 Delta, but what if I told you that you could get all of the schools on the front end? You could still get about 90, let's call it 80% to make my army brothers happy. 80% of the medical training, all the trauma, all the other stuff. We're not going to talk about indigenous population and vets. Fine, but we'll get you all the other stuff. You're going to be able to shoot, move, communicate on a small team. And you're going to have the exact same funding as somebody that's five times bigger than you. And they go, oh, okay. Um, but that's, that's kind of where it started, where, where I'd like it to go. You know, we're not in the training business. We're not going to be the guys that show up on a weekend and make you do push-ups until you can't anymore. That just, that's not a lot of value for us. What we want to do is scout, guide, mentor, coach through the entire process using us as a belly button. I've cited a couple of times, you know, in my dream world where this is my, my, you know, when I move on from the military, which is going to be sooner rather than later, if I'm doing my math correctly, um, you know, I, I pictured almost like a sports agency, you know, you come to us and you're like, Hey, here's the raw material that I've got for you. I think that I can be one of these career fields and we go, okay, I think we can get you there too. And we provide you that guidance, that mentorship, that insight, that experience that we have on the project you know, we have more than, I think if you combine the three of us with 70 years of, of experience or something silly like that, or 65 years for sure. Um, you know, we, we want to give back because the career fields, those jobs are that important. And, you know, I, I know we talked about not getting into political stuff and, you know, not getting into the culture war and I, I got it, but I think it's safe to say that right now there's a lot of consternation and everybody's like, where are we going? And is the future going to be okay? We want to impact that directly. We want to find those people and coach them, teach them stories about some of the heroes in their career fields they've never heard of. We want to show them the culture that uh, the proud culture of air force rescue and air force special tactics. And we want to show them the way how to get there and, and do it, you know, quote, the right way, because that's how much we value the career fields. Well, Aaron, that sounds like a heck of a project. How does the Air Force feel about it? Because this is something that you guys are doing on your own, right? We are. Yeah. So it's completely on our own. So we have great relationships with the PA folks and, and with all those people. We've had the Chief Master Sergeant in the Air Force on twice. Chief Bass has come on two times and, and come and talk. We have a bunch of high-level guests, three-star generals, and, you know, some other people that I'll I'll keep behind the curtain for now so that we can wait. But um, we have a great working relationship. Like any other project, there were some people that in the beginning were a little bit resistant to it. 
but you know, I'm proud to say that we've we've been able to kind of turn their uh, turn their feelings around is is a good way. The people that said, "Oh, you know, they might have been resistant in the in the beginning and said, I don't know if this is going to make it. You think you're better than a recruiter? What do you guys think you're doing? You know, uh, how do you think that you're going to do our jobs better?" And and we were like, "Listen, it's never about that. We we want to talk about these this goodness that's out there." And now those people are our friends. And they're like, hey, have you thought about having this person on? Have you thought about having these people on? And we're like, bring them. Absolutely. I'm really glad to hear that because it wasn't too long ago that most of the military was very resistant to anything like this, especially in the special special operations community. Mm -hmm. And quiet professionalism is a great way to live your life as a soft professional, but that doesn't mean silent. And so much of what we do right now, so much content by young people in particular, your men and women that you want to recruit, they consume content in what you're doing with Ones Ready, doing those podcasts, putting it out in a format that they can reach and understand. And I'm thinking also about other organizations like Chuck Ritter down at Pineland Underground, for example, versus Special Forces side, how important that is for the community. So, yeah, I think that's great. Well, and you look at some of the other plays like, you know, Matt Parrish, Sergeant Major Matt Parrish is a good friend of ours. He does softcast. He's come on yeah. a couple of times and his work with Mentors for Mill. And, you know, I'm, I'm happy to say we were really kind of in on the ground floor of that group, that kind of peer group of people. We were just the only people that were doing it Air Force specific. And, you know, I, I have a lot of love in my heart for my my PJ brothers that that really do want to quiet professional themselves, you know, like I, I get it. Like, I understand you don't want to aggrandize your own things and we're very protective. That's why you, you don't hear a whole lot of stories about pararescue men doing wild stuff. You know, it's not that we don't, <laughs> it's that the career field insulates those things extremely well. Right. So every, every special operations force has their problems. Like great moving on. Um, we've done a great job of making sure that our, um, our reputation in the community is is intact and is good. Be, and I think that's because we work with joint so so many times. Like I've I've shown up to a team before where maybe a PJ or maybe a controller hasn't hasn't been best for that team beforehand. And they show up there like, oh, you're not gonna be like this guy, are you? And you're just like, crap. Okay. <laughs> Starting from negative one square. So um, you know, but all that to say, like, I think there is value. And I think there's a way to strike a balance as well. You know, I'm I'm not out here saying I shop in Laden. I'm not out, I don't I don't think I've ever talked about a single firefight that I've ever been in. I don't I try not to aggrand personal things that I've done. I would much rather highlight the good things that we've done, um, you know, in the career field. Like one of my next guests is a, lo- a longtime friend of mine. I actually supervised them in Nellis, which is a crazy thing because he'd been a PJ longer than I was. Um, you know, but he was responsible for saving, like in his award decoration, they were like, you're responsible for saving 10% of the people that got out of HKIA. That is 10,000 people. Wow. That That is ridiculous. Like the team that did that at Abbey Gate, like the people that ran the mass casualty at Abbey Gate were pararescue and combat rescue officers. The people that were getting people into these gates using methods that we hadn't seen before and hadn't exercised and they figured out on the spot during 24-hour operations those are pararescue men and combat rescue officers. And that that story, that mission is righteous. It, we don't need to attach names and aggrandize, you know, those people or, you know, it's not our intent to lionize them or, or put them on a pedestal. But holy cow, that story is important. So, Aaron, you mentioned that you get asked the same questions over and over. What are some of the questions that you that, that you get asked about PJ? 
Oh, what's a day to day like? It's my favorite one of all time. <laughs> it's like, and no matter how many times we answer it, it just does not matter, right? So, you know, oh, well, what what's the day to day like being a PJ? And there's no way for us to say that. There's no way for me to tell you what it is. Like, okay, wh- it, what cycle of training are you in? Do you have a deployment coming up or not? Is it, uh, is it during a jump phase? Are you working on tactics? Do you have to go get your paramedic recertified? Are you going to do some mountaineering? Are you going to go to Hawaii to do some jungle ops? Are you going to go to Norway to attach to the Marine Jaeger commandos for four months and go run through their Bravo squadron stuff? Like, it's just, it's there's no way for us to answer it. Because on the, on the back end of that is like, well, how many of your folks are due EPRs this week? Do you have to write any awards packages? Are you just an admin dork sitting at your desk, tippity typing away? Because no matter how cool you are, you still have to do CBTs. It doesn't matter what type of special operator you are. And I heard this from a guy that worked at the tier one unit in the army, and I always loved it. He had a very distinct way of talking. He had something like 18 deployments up at that unit. And he was just like, hey, man, no matter how cool you are, you still got to turn your gear in and someone's going <laughs> to tell them that you owe them $500 for a piece of gear that you broke. And it's, and it's true. Um, so the, the day to day stuff is, is really hard. The, the ones that, are, that I love answering are, you know, why did you get in? What's your favorite part of the job? Like we get those questions a lot, but that's because people want to connect with you. They, they think that they see something. Those people think that they see something in me that they might have inside themselves and when you hear 91% attrition rate, you know, so small of a number of people, you're like, oh, this is impossible. But then when you hear some kid from Northeast Ohio, like me, that really isn't talented, you know, I don't have a whole lot of natural inborn talents. I'd like to say that I have a good work ethic and I've worked hard to make my, um, my talents better, but I'm no different than I'm not like a physical stud. I'm not the, the world's strongest human. I'm not the world's fastest runner or swimmer. I just went back and I just refused to quit. And some people see that in me and they they want to ask questions because they're trying to figure it out about themselves. So those those are the the most fun ones. But it's like, man, we have a we have a lot of uh 15 to 18 year olds that are like, I want to go get into a gunfight. Who sees the most com combat? Or do combat controllers kick in more doors than pararescue men? Or and <laughs> you're just like, I don't know, man. They're they're like, oh well, it's I want to do, I want to do a uh, combat now, but like nobody's doing it because GWAT's over. And I'm like, are you wishing for war? Do you realize people die in war and you want to go get into a firefight because you think it looks cool? Like those are, those are the tough ones <laughs> to talk through because I'm trying not to be a salty old guy with them. <laughs> yeah. It sounds like some folks been watching too much Call of Duty. Way too much. Yeah. Way too much. Yeah. So it seems that being a PJ, especially in the recruiting process, it seems like you focus a lot on the basics and getting good at the basic stuff. Is that accurate, Aaron? 100%. That's it. The, the ba- shoot, move, communicate, medicate, and tech rescue. That's what a PJ is. That's what we do. Those are your five food groups. So when you're out doing operations, it seems like your job is is largely inherently joint, like you're working with a lot of other services. Do you do a lot of combined operations as well, meaning with other nations, military forces? Absolutely. Yep. We have we have pararescue men all over the world right now. They're embedded with other nations, operational forces, um, whether it be soft or sometimes conventional, um, you know, depending on what the flavor is. We we worked a lot with the um, Kenyan, it's called the RRU, the Ranger Regimental Unit. Um, I think they just changed like RRD, but essentially it's 
Um, you know, they do a lot of border operations um, in Somalia, protecting Kenya from Somalia, their sovereign territory and, and from um, mal actors in, in the place. So it's not just Somalia. Everybody knows Somalia is a hotbed for, you know, um, terrorist networks and stuff like that. Yeah. But it, it, of course, it has spillover into the neighboring countries. So, you know, a lot of our work there was actually teaching them how to, you know, simple stuff like TCCC, how to establish an HLZ for Kazavac, how to how to provide medical care to somebody, you know, how to talk to an aircraft to get them where you need to go, stuff like that, that air to ground integration stuff that we're just good at inherently because we just do it over and over again. Um, you know, working with those international partners is, is always awesome. Did you have a favorite international partner, favorite country that you liked working with? Norway. I don't know what it was about Norway. I had I had such a good time in Norway with those guys that they are just hard mountain men that go out. It's always freezing. It's always wet. They do not care. You cannot stop them from doing it. They they fought. That's a really weird political system in Norway. Uh, I think it's the reds and the greens uh, is how they split it up. But basically nobody wanted them to go to war. And the Marine Jaeger commandos when GWAT was going on was like, okay, tight, tight, tight. We're going to go over there for something different. <laughs> and they just they just went over there to get into fights, right? But these guys, I'll tell you what, you know, it's uh, if I had to compare them, they'd be uh, you know on par with our tier one SEAL unit here. Nice. I'll, I'll tell you what, professional as the day is long, they know how to let their hair down literally because they're allowed to have long hair and beards, which is also pretty cool. Um, but they know how to let their hair down and party. They don't take themselves too seriously. But I'll tell you what, those guys were professional and they were so good at what they do. I was I was just you know, remarkably impressed by the, it's the MJK, but the Marine Jaeger commandos um, up there. So shout out Bravo squadron. What's up? <laughs> Aaron, have you ever done the Norwegian foot march badge? Have you ever, ever done that program? I did. I did not. I, the first time I actually ever heard of that was the last deployment that I was on in, in, uh, um, Africa. And I don't know why they just took it. Like they decided like the, the secfo cats and there were a, a whole bunch of people like they would do it like the 24 hour, like you have to do whatever. And I was shocked because I was like, wow, I was with them forever. And they never mentioned that there was this foot march badger or I would have done it. But uh, yeah, it's it's a cool event. I've done the baton three times. Oh, yeah. I, th yeah. I think I'm going to I think I'm going to do the baton again this year. I'm, I'm batting around. I'm about 90 percent there. Um, so I think I'd be good for the Norwegian foot march, but I just I've never done it. So I, I won't stolen valor myself on that one. <laughs> well, I did it once a couple of years ago. A cadet here at West Point organized it. It was a huge event. Well attended. Mm -hmm. And it's basically a movement of daylight. I think we had to start at 2300. And it was faster and longer than most foot marches that I'd done. Yep. And it's here at West Point, everything's uphill. So yeah, I did, it. I did it, but it hurt my soul. I was like, I'm never doing that again. I'm 50 <laughs> years old. I got no business out here. My 17-year-old my at the time, my oldest daughter, Emily, who's off at military school right now, she did it with me. In fact, that's the reason I did it. Like I, I'm mm -hmm. retired, you know, at that point I was retiring. I, I can't wear more than one foreign decoration and the Norwegian foot right. march is like a tie tack. It's tiny. <laughs> it, it's, it's like the opposite of the effort that you have to get, go through to get it. And she's like, Hey dad, let's do this. I was like, all right, I'll do it. And as soon as we started, she took off running like later loser. And I didn't see her again until the end. <laughs> so I was just stumbling around angry for 18 miles or whatever. Ridiculous it was. So, Absolutely terrible. Aaron, earlier in our discussion, you mentioned social media platforms. And I was thinking about that's how that's the way you and I met through the Shadow Spear website. Do you want to yep. take a little minute and talk about why you got involved with Shadow Spear, what that's all about? 
I just saw a group of like-minded people again that like Instagram wasn't that big. Facebook, I was already over Facebook at that point. Like I, I, I never was a fan of Facebook uh, from the very beginning. Like that thing got super cheesy to me right away. So I, I wasn't really big on Facebook. Instagram wasn't a thing. I was in, I think I was in England. No, I was in, uh, yeah, I was still in the pipeline. So I was graduating the pipeline when I first got on there. So 2007, 2008. And I just saw a bunch of like-minded people that I learned a lot from. Like it it was a classic progression of I lurked around and I checked out the message forum boards and every once in a while I'd have a question or you'd get into a discussion and it just turned out to be one of those things that I ended up spending more and more time on and it was really valuable. I've made, you know, lifelong friends, not only you, but, you know, I can't, I can't name the, the amount of like, quote, internet friends that I've now met up with, you know, it's like every year I run into somebody somewhere and, and you get to go say hi. And even as far as, you know, Afghanistan you know, Eric and I from the, from the site had a, had a lovely dinner over at a uh, Bagram airfield in the middle of Afghanistan, which was just a crazy thing, but it was really, a, it's a really valuable place to go. And it's a big, huge board with a ton of information. The, the amount of information contained in that single place. And there, there's a bunch of them. There's a bunch of, you know, places that you can go to find kind of those like-minded individuals, but shadow spear was that place for me. And, you know, I've, I've really been grateful for the impact that it's had on my life. Cause overall it's always, it's always been positive. Same, same for me. And I was smiling when you're talking about Eric. In fact, uh, I, we won't drop his last name now for purposes of privacy, but hoping to have him on the show as well, because I too had a great dinner with Eric at Field, <laughs> probably because that dude was there for like 20 years. He was. He, he was yeah. Every time I went, he was every still single there. Time. <laughs> every single time. <laughs> like, do you have a house? <laughs> yeah. And the thing I like about it too, is that it was kind of like the safe space. Like we've gotten into very, as you all know, we've gotten into very contentious conversations. Yeah. Like there've been some, there's been good things. There's been bad things, but yeah. you can always, it's almost like, you know, when I was talking about Indoc and that shared experience, right? We all have the shared experience of, yeah, you may, every once in a while, you got to call your friend stupid and punch him in the mouth. Got it. Like every once in a while, you got to talk sharply to your friend and say, hey, you're being stupid and this is why. But we all have that shared experience of, hey, we've been here. This is a community. And we've all shared this experience of being in the military in some form or fashion from, you know, special operations support to operators to, you know, infantrymen to Marines to, we have a, a wide, you know, people that work in the federal agencies we have a, a wide gamut of people there and it really opens up the conversation to things that you, it's definitely not an echo chamber. I'll tell you that much. Like there's at least some voices there that are like, you say something stupid, you're going to get called out. But that's the, the intimacy there is something that I've always come back to. And I know it's weird to use intimacy in this sense, but you know, where I, I've had plenty of times where I say something on that site and I'm in a conversation. One of my friends emails me and goes, Hey man, um, you know, you sound like a dickhead right now. And I'm like, ah, oh, check. Yep. Okay. Got it. I, I was a t- too heavy handed with that one, and that's good. But that's that's what community is. That, that's fine in those like minded individuals. And Shadow Spear is just it's that place. I feel the same way. There's so many interesting people with just incredible backgrounds and yeah. great thinkers as well. There's been so many times where I've gone to fact check someone that I don't because I was like, that's there's no way that's true. Like actually, that's 100 percent accurate. Just some really <laughs> right? interesting thoughts on there. And plenty of times when it turns out not to be true, also, which is also sure. fun. Yeah. But yeah, great, great times and great, great uh, conversations on shadowspear.com. So Aaron, in terms of the future, I know you, you said you were, your career might be coming to an end at some point. You've been in a long time. What do you see yourself doing long-term after you hang up the uniform? I wish I knew. I have done a really bad job at, you know, trying to be an adult and trying to figure out what I want to do when I grow up. So, you know, obviously once ready is always going to be a thing. 
you know, uh, try to it, it, this whole family thing is definitely going on um, right now. So that's that's great. I'm really looking forward to starting that next part of my life. And I think for the next little bit, I think I'm going to step away from the military and probably step away from that space. So I'm, I'm always I, I can't do nothing. You know, I'm a military working dog. I essentially am a, a Dutch shepherd or a Malinois. Like if you just leave me to my own devices, like I'm going to chew the couch up and shit on stuff and you're going to get mad at me. So I, I have to have it. I have to have a job. Um, I think I'm going to look, especially, you know, right out of here. I, I think I'm going to gain a little bit of distance from this military thing because I've done it for my entire adult life. I, I honestly don't know what else is out there for me and where else I can be of service. Um, but I, I know that that is that is where I want to go. Um, I'm a proud American citizen. I love this country. I want to continue to serve. I just don't know what capacity that's in yet. Whether it's a, a citizen that's doing right by my little community or, or whether maybe it's a, a different calling or, or some other thing, I'm open to it. Um, so I'm exploring a lot of different options. I just don't, I'm not 100% sure yet, but I have a little bit more than a year. So I've done it the right way. Like I started getting my affairs in order like two years out to where I think I'm going to step away. So I'm within that window now. So even much to my my family and the people that care about me, much to their like, um, you know, the whatever the opposite of chagrin is, much to their, you know, joy, I've actually uh, put a little bit of thought and effort into it. So we'll, we'll see that the right thing will pop up and it'll be there, but always going to be with ones ready. I'm going to keep doing that until I'm, until I'm irrelevant, right? Because that's, that's the main thing there is, hey, I want to, I want to be relevant, get good information out and, and present Pararescue in the best possible light. So I'm going to continue to do that as far as what I'm going to do for the other work stuff. No clue what I want to do when I grow up. I would, you got any, uh, you got any jobs up there? You got any there for me? <laughs> <laughs> hey, we, we definitely should talk about that later on. As a guy who recently transitioned out of the service myself, I got some thoughts for you. But I'm pretty yeah. sure you're gonna be you're gonna be good, Aaron. You're very marketable and got a lot of skills <laughs> behind you. So we will see. So, Aaron, you mentioned earlier, if I remember correctly, that you left the you left college or didn't finish and then enlisted in the Air Force. Did you go back and earn a degree? Is that something you're interested in doing later, or are you just done? Man, I, I'll tell you. So, first of all, I, I want to. I want to frame this correctly. So I failed miserably out of college, right? I got put on academic probation from Ohio State. I was paying for college myself. I'm the oldest of six kids, paying for college myself. And I was like, nope, I'm not taking on another $20,000 worth of debt for me to get middling grades doing prereq crap. So I was like, all right, cool. I'm going to go to Akron University. I did the same thing for about another year. And then that's when two, you know, September 11th, uh, 2001 kicked off. So um, I've got three associate's degrees from the Air Force. And I've never pursued higher education after that. Now, I'm, I'm going to say this because this is what wisdom is, kids, boys and girls. Go get your four-year degree. Get it finished. Don't be the story of the guy that never left the teams and never valued the four-year degree because it does open more doors than not having one has. And I, now, I, you know, with the, I've been lucky enough to, to be accepted into the Special Operations Transition Foundation that looks at special operators and opens up the network and gives them coaching on things that they're bad at. And I am the case study for everything that I am like that, that they try to fix. Right. No, for <laughs> no four year degree doesn't really, you know, never had a strategic level job. You know, I was the guy that went into a team room and made the team good. I wasn't the guy that looked at overarching, you know, 10 year plans and was able to drive a ship there, or have that strategic vision because I was never put in that position and I won't even pretend like I'm any good at it. Um, so no, I do not have a four year degree, but I'm telling anybody that can hear this, anybody that's listening to me babble on, go get your four year degree, especially if you're in the military and they're paying for it, 
do something that you actually like and you're going to use in the future, even if it's a trade school. There's a million different ways to get good, valuable skills for free through the military. So go do that. That's that is my soapbox. Hey, I think that's great advice. And that's something we talked about a lot on Shadow Spear and folks come on asking if they should drop out in the list or they should wrap up their degree. So I don't know if it's helpful for you, but a longtime friend of mine and maybe yours as well, Mike Kelvington from the Ranger Regiments, the professor of military science over at Ohio State. So if you're looking to go back to Ohio and get out, Mike might be a good person to talk to. So shout out to Mike Kelvington at the Ohio State yeah. University. The Ohio State University. I'm always a Buckeye at heart, but I also uh, have a healthy uh, hate for Ohio because I had to grow up there. So I know all the worst things about it as well. So I get it. Well, Aaron, we're coming towards the end of the segment. I I wanted to let you have the last word in terms of things that you want to say that you want to highlight, anything you want to go back and revisit, and especially any words of wisdom you might have for anyone who's looking to serve their country in some way. So over to you, brother, for the last word. Yeah, I, I would just, you know, start with being thankful. I'm I'm just thankful for this opportunity. I'm thankful for every single time that somebody wants to listen to this, you know, dorky kid that grew up in Northeast Ohio that didn't know what he wanted to do. Like, I, I am not a special person. I'm not somebody to be emulated. I'm just an example that you can really come from anywhere and you can figure out how to do these jobs if that's what you want. The only thing I would ask in return is that you do a really good job of understanding what we are as America who we are as American citizens, what impact that we've had to the history of the world and to our current geopolitical climate. And you realize that we're an overall net good. The things that we do in America, we are the freest, most benevolent, most tolerant society that history has ever seen. We've done more good for the world than any society in the history of the world. All I ask is that come in, serve your country honorably. That's great. But even if you're an American citizen, look at our history and look at what we're meant to do the silver frame and the golden apple sort of thing and the constitution, the bill of rights and really understand that that this, this place is really, really good and you can serve in whatever way that you want, but it's important for you to serve and and to love this country because I'll tell you what, I love this country scars and all. And, and I can't wait to continue to serve her and and I'm never leaving it. Love this country, good, bad, and different. Um, But that's the only words of wisdom I would say is like, we really do come from a good place and the things that we aspire to be, are the things that everybody wants to be. Um, so please make it a point to serve this country as, as well as you possibly can, whatever capacity it is. Aaron, thanks. I think that's a great way to leave it. I really appreciate you spending some time with us today. And I learned some things today about PJs. I worked with PJs for a long time and, and JSOC PJs were everywhere, but I learned some things as well. I think that anyone listening to the site will learn some things. And look forward to hearing more about what you plan to do down the road and look forward to seeing ones ready become even bigger. So thanks, brother, for being on the show. Appreciate it. Thanks very much. Love it. Ladies and gentlemen, this concludes another episode of the Battlefields podcast. Many thanks to today's guest, Aaron Love, to our editor, Michael Neal, to our sponsors, the Epoch Times and the Havoc Journal. And most of all, thanks to you, our listeners. God bless and good hunting on your own battlefields. <laughs>